Hello, friends. Welcome to Leadosophy. This episode, you are here with an open mind because that's the rule, not the exception. Thank you for, for having that open mind and thank you for watching and listening if you're listening on, on any of your podcast choices. Today's episode, I'm going to talk about an interview that I gave or that I did. One of my co-workers is working on a certification program. I think it's a leadership and management certification program for a university. And she wanted to interview me on some, I guess, some concepts about trust, effective leadership. And I'm, I'm humbled that she thought of me to even to even do this interview. There's five questions I want to go through that she asked, and I'll kind of talk about how I answered them. Try to remember kind of some some things I, I threw in, but I took some notes before we did the interview. And again, I appreciate the opportunity for, for her to give me a heads up on what the questions were. I think that helps when you're interviewing somebody, if they have an idea what the questions are ahead of time. So I was fortunate to be able to do that. So I hope you like this episode. These are going to be my thoughts on some effective leadership ideas that I have of what I understand and what, what it might be and how it might work and not work. So here we go. Are you ready to permanently fuse leadership and philosophy? Then a word of caution, you are about to enter the fully abstract yet wholly concrete realm of leadosophy. Our ideas are not always so clear and distinct. To validate this proposition, we welcome the host of leadosophy, Tim Wood. All right, Leadosophy friends, welcome back. So I was interviewed last week or earlier this week. And it was about effective leadership. And one of my first points to the interviewer when she was talking about effective leadership, I, I always come back to this idea of are we working on the same idea or same meaning of effectiveness? What does it mean to be an effective leader? And I actually wrote this in a Facebook post today to in a leadership group I'm in. There's a gentleman that posted that he was on the, the tail end of writing a new leadership book. He's about finished. And the premise of the book is, you know, he talks about leadership, how to be, become a better leader. And he's got all these ideas and tips and tricks and all these things from the most some from some very successful leaders and the successful leader and the effective leader for me it's it's kind of the same idea what what is the definition of success and i go back to another book that was written in the early 90s a very famous leadership book i think it's called the 21st century of leadership and there's some really gold mine of information in there but again the the all the people that who were interviewed all of these successful leaders and that's mentioned multiple times in the very first introduction of the book are CEOs of companies presidents of board x or y of this company they're the like they're the highest levels of in of people in their profession and it felt like it was a very capital driven book are we are we defining success of a leader the effectiveness of a leader 
by the wealth creation for the shareholders, the size and the scale of the business. Is that what we're, is that our, our peak definition of successful leadership or effective leadership? Is it financially driven? I don't know. I think a lot of people would go back and I think you could have many debates or arguments or different dialogues on what is effectiveness and success and should it be tied to the success of a business. There must be CEOs out there who on paper financially run an extremely successful business, but they're a nightmare to work for. It is a paradox, is it not? From a philosophical standpoint. I guess the more successful the business is, the more opportunity to to bring in, to expand the workforce, to create jobs, which is all which are all good things. But if it's a nightmare working for the boss, at what cost is it? What mental cost is it? And again, if you have a job and you're thankful for your for having a job, is it because your leader is effective? Your leader was successful in creating that job for you? I'm sure that's part of it. But it can't be the whole thing. It can't be the whole the whole pie. So anyways, that's my little diatribe about effective leadership, successful leadership. It seems like it's it's very often tied to success of a business. But I know there's other factors that people think about completion of the mission, completion of objectives on a consistent basis maybe, how well the followers develop underneath the leadership. I think that is another measure of effectiveness. I guess where I'm going with this is there's probably multiple, multiple, multiple layers of effectiveness and that can be defined in many different ways. Meaning could be understood in many different ways. And that may, maybe that's not a bad thing. All right, so there were five questions that, that I, were, I was given to focus on for this interview. And it was, this was probably more along the lines of team effectiveness. I guess getting the team to achieve common goals, inspiring the team, things of that nature. The first two questions, or at least the first question, I'd say the first two questions really kind of focus on emotional connections and trust. Fostering that environment building that environment, building coalitions of trust between team members, between leaders and followers, between just followers, all followers. Maybe you don't have a designated leader. How does that trust develop? The first question was, how do you foster an emotional connection within your team? I think empathy empathy is one of the first, I think one of the first things that came to mind for me. That was the first note I took one of the first words I wrote down was empathy, being empathetic. And you can't always be empathetic, I don't think. I think there are situations where you really have no comprehension of what someone's going through. I don't know as if you can be empathetic in those situations. I think you can be sympathetic. I think there's differences. I know there's differences between sympathy and empathy. But I think empathy is more relatable, trying to relate to that situation as a leader. And I think about situations like if you have to if you have to give a very difficult counseling session or maybe someone's performance is subpar and assuming, of course, someone's 
subpar performance isn't a result of poor processes, defective processes in, in your organization, which can cause subpar performance. And then we blame that on the person. Assuming that's not the case and the person may be actually lacking in their performance. I think you can have empathy going into how you have that tough conversation, trying to put yourself in that person's, put yourself in the shoes of that person as if you were going to be the one receiving that tough conversation on the receiving end. I think that's one of the key ways that you can lead with empathy. Any tough decision you make, any tough conversation you have to have, I think if you have those tough conversations and you you make those tough decisions from a empathetic frame, frame of reference, I think you're going to immediately think about other people as you're making the decisions and having having these conversations. Especially, you know, what are the consequences of having these conversations or making these decisions? What are the unintended consequences potentially? It's just putting your you're putting yourself in, in the place of the other, as if you're on the other end of your decisions and conversations or tough conversations, I guess. That's just a couple examples. Another way to, I think you can foster trust is t- through technical competence. I think the more technically competent you are, people will gravitate towards that knowledge and that competence, maybe not emotionally at first, but over time, I think the emotion will build. I think the want to, that natural gravitation towards your abilities, your technical abilities, will start to create an emotional connection with others. I think that can happen. Maybe not. would love to hear your thoughts on that. A few other ideas I had were tell good stories, be a good storyteller, or work on your storytelling. Humans have been telling stories for millennia. You know, that's, we, we communicated in stories long before we, we had written books. There's an emotional connection that can happen when you're, when you're telling stories, especially personal stories. And there are studies to back this up. The, th- the theory here matches the practice as far as emotional connection. Telling, telling good stories, telling meaningful stories, telling personal stories. You know, when I showed up to my unit in, in Long Island in 2011, I, I told a very personal story. My first day with a crew size of about 50 people. And I sat in a chair and everyone was gathered around me. And I did that purposefully. I wanted to just be a everyone sit in a circle type conversation. And maybe that was a little cliche or whatever, but it felt right to me. It felt like the right thing to do. I didn't want to be standing and everybody sitting and I didn't want to put off this idea that I was above everybody. I wanted to just be amongst my crew, my new crew that I was responsible for leading. And I told a very personal story about an event that had happened to me a couple months before I showed up to that unit. And that event had a very deep impact on me in my Coast Guard career from a leadership perspective. And I shared that story over the course of probably 45 minutes or so with the crew. And I gave them a chance to ask me some questions on it. And, and they had a lot of questions because it was a very, it was actually a Coast Guard wide impactful story that it actually happened to, to some various people. And, you know, it was a, it was a Coast Guard wide story that happened. So I, and I was involved in it as far as, 
you know, listening to some of the decisions that were made and, you know, things that happened throughout that story. But I think there was a connection made there initially. And I knew I was, that was part of the reason I, I kind of did that in the, in the beginning. I was wanting to establish that. I wanted to establish that emotional connection with them. I wanted them to see me being real, being raw in my emotions and what, and how I felt about a certain situation that happened to me or that I was involved in. And I didn't tell that story just because I was hoping it would give a, a connection. That's not the main reason I told that story. I was hoping, I guess, that would be a byproduct. But the main reason that uh, I told that story was to was for some learning lessons that I wanted to impart immediately upon them um, and, and give them some wisdom and knowledge based off what I had experienced. And I think I did that. And we had so we had a great discussion, follow-on discussion afterwards. But over the coming days after I told that story and we had that kind of round table discussion, I had multiple multiple people come up to me and said they appreciated, you know, me opening up like that. And and I wasn't afraid to do that. There's a, always a little bit of, I guess, anxiety when you open yourself up from a leadership perspective and, you know, being vulnerable. But I think the more you're willing to be vulnerable, and I'm not saying everything in your personal life, but I'm I'm just saying the more you're you're willing to be a little bit vulnerable and personal with those around you, I think that'll establish a connection. I think that will help with the trust perspective or the trust factor a little bit. But that even that's not given. You know, when I gave that discussion or gave that talk with with the crew, I I didn't expect that I was going to be immediately trusted. I knew I had to earn that. And that's another point I made with, with my interview the other day. I said, trust and respect rise and fall together or they run concurrently or in parallel on some level, I believe. But again, you can't be afraid to be, be vulnerable and you can't be afraid of just being a genuine person. You have to be human. Uh, I guess the robotic type of leadership can work. And it probably has its place in some situations where you have to be kind of cold and calculated. I had a gentleman that I used to work for in the Coast Guard. And I remember about, this is probably 20, 20 years ago. I remember he told me his leadership style was to rule with an iron fist and a heavy heart rule with an iron fist and a heavy heart. And I think about what he said back then and the two polar opposite ideas. When I think of ruling with an iron fist, I think of this just authoritative dictatorship and then ruling with a heavy heart. I think of the empathy and, and raw emotion that you that you lead with as a you know in a leadership position. And I guess you kind of smash those things together. And, you know, if you look at them on a spectrum, iron fist, heavy heart, you know, you're probably moving back and forth somewhere in the middle between those two polar, polar concepts, polarized concepts. So that's the, the first trust question. The second trust question was, how do you foster trust? And my response was, it was a very, there's a very complex question. It's, it's kind of, it's masking itself. It's only five words. How do you foster trust? 
but it's very deep and very complex. It's multifaceted. You know, I think back to the search and rescue world that I used to be a part of. You know, when you show up to a unit and whether you're a junior enlisted person or, you know, a commissioned officer, the first time you sail on a boat or a Coast Guard cutter with a brand new, with a crew you've never been around, there's a certain amount of trust that is must be inherent, implied, automatic. And now that certain amount of trust is can be very minor, can be very minuscule, but it's there nonetheless. It has to be if you're going to perform some very dangerous missions together with someone you've never worked with before. And you must prove yourself. You must prove your technical competence if you're on the technical side. And you must prove your leadership confidence if you are immediately thrust into the role of leader and you're expected to have a certain amount of technical competence and leadership competence and no one working for you has ever worked for you before. So there's one facet of trust there and there's a whole bunch of other facets of trust. You know, you, you have to trust that a leader is going to have your back if the chips are down. And we talked about this in the last episode, one of the last episodes I did, I did my post-interview of, of Chief Warren Officer Morgan. And that's not just carte blanche trust, have your back all the time, even if you make terrible decisions. But if I make a decision, it's really a hard decision. I hope you'll support me. If I, if I took all the right things into account and I, I made the best decision I could with the information I had to work with, and I, I made the best decision with, with my followers in mind, the mission in, in, in mind, the objectives in mind, the, 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 the organizational principles, values, whatever they might be, if I made that best decision I could, I hope you will support me and I trust that you will do that. You know, there's a trust that, again, trust in your words. You know, I trust that my boss is honest in, in my performance when giving me feedback. You're not telling me one thing and, and telling his or her boss something else about how I perform or not perform. There's a whole, just, there's a whole, there's many layers of trust. It's a very complex thing. It's a very complex human phenomenon when it comes to relationships. And again, I, I think there's the trust in, you know, in my organizational leadership program at Gonzaga common terms that kept coming up working in teams with psychological safety, which just is another fancy way of saying trust. But highly effective teams, again, will are able to, teammates are able to be vulnerable in their thoughts and their assumptions and their values. They're able to open up. They're able to make mistakes and they're not, they're not afraid to make mistakes because they know the other team members won't, crucify him for, for making a mistake. So again, trust is pretty complex, more than you can boil down in a 45-minute interview on, on leadership. The next question I was asked went into motivation, which leadosophy is not a big fan of the idea that you can motivate people. And the longer you listen to my show or watch it, you'll, you'll see that I have some very, I have some real problems with 
people who think they can motivate others. Not that you can't. You can. You can motivate others. And whether it's carrots or sticks, whatever you're using, rewards and punishments. But my answer was heavily involved with intrinsic motivation. I think you can inspire people, but I think you have to to really tap into the intrinsic motivation of those around you. What, within, within a workforce, you know, in any organization, right? Where do, where do the people find their own self-motivation? How do they motivate themselves? Not so much how do you motivate them? And again, I know carrots and sticks works. I know there's performance bonuses and incentives and, you know, there's punishments for doing wrong things. I get all that. I understand that, that those can be motivators. But when it comes to, you want people to to flourish in, in the organization, they have to find something that inspires them. They have to find their own motivation somehow. I think you can help. I think you can help do that. And one of the analogies I, I used was the fertile soil analogy from a leadership perspective. As a leader, I've always thought one of my primary jobs or primary roles was to remove as many barriers as I could from those doing their jobs, finding their purpose in the workplace. And again, every employee or person that works in an organization is going to have different levels of motivation, self-motivation. I get that. There's going to be there's going to be people that are super highly motivated. They need no rewards or punishments. They just want to be the best at their job and they relentlessly pursue that idea. Maybe they aspire to to run the organization one day, whatever it might be. Then you have people on the other end of the spectrum, the paycheckers which every organization needs paycheckers. Every organization needs people who clock in and clock out. They don't go above and beyond. They simply just hit the, hit the check marks in their job description. And they do it well. And they do it consistently. Every organization needs those people. Those are the, that's probably the bulk of, of many organizations. You have to support those people. You, your organization can't survive without those people. But every one of those persons will have different things that inspire them, different things that provide them purpose in their work-life balance. So the more barriers or obstacles you can remove from them to find their purpose, the better. And not just removing barriers, but I go back to what I said in another episode, it's knowledge, tools, and resources. KTR, knowledge, tools, resources. Make sure you are giving them that technical competence. You are providing them a space to learn technical competence, become a master of their craft. You are allowing them to pursue other avenues of knowledge. I know in the current organization I work for, we give so much money a year for people to explore other education opportunities to better themselves. And of course, it betters the business. The tools and resources. Tools could be anything from a functioning laptop to 
a decent workspace. You know, I think about Milton in the, the movie The Office Space who's down in the basement. You know, dark, dingy basement. Is, is, is Milton going to be able to, to become self-motivated if he's just in a terrible work environment? And that terrible work environment can be physical and it can be mental as well. So as a leader, you're trying to improve the soil, which is all these conditions surrounding the plants. And if you focus a lot of your energy on the soil conditions, hopefully the plants will, will naturally begin to grow and reach their potential. And that may, again, that may be kind of a silly analogy or metaphor, but I like it. It's simple. It's visual. Focus on the soil. Soil conditions, how much water the soil is getting. You know, things like that. Another question I received was, how do you help your team become cognitively engaged with their work? I think everything I talked about on that last question about motivation applies here with helping your team become cognitively engaged. Well, the first thing is, how do you separate cognitive engagement at work and whether your employees are motivated to be cognitively engaged? I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin, or if you're going to draw a Venn diagram, a lot of the, there'd be a lot of overlap there. I think you have to start with some key assumptions about human behavior, human performance. And I've seen leaders that lead based on the idea that it's based on mistrust. They are very skeptical of the workforce. They are very skeptical that people are going to work hard, whatever that means, work hard. And some of these leaders think, think that they have to coax the energy out of people, or if they don't coax it with rewards and punishments, then people are just going to act naturally act lazy. But there's a flip side to that assumption. You can assume that everyone around you is not lazy. You can assume that the workforce wants to create quality services and quality products. That's their default mindset. And if you approach your job as a leader like that, like everybody's giving their best effort, everybody wants to produce the, the best products or whatever it might be, if you approach it that way and you're not mistrustful of, of people around you and you don't think they're lazy naturally, then I think, that'll, I think that'll set you up for success. Maybe a little better. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Maybe you need uh, an authoritarian regime of rewards and punishments, but I think that's pretty old school. Again, I think it also may be situational. I mean, there's so many different industries out there and different types of work and nonprofit work versus for-profit work. You know, hopefully in the nonprofit side, you have a bunch of people that are there because they find the work inspiring and also, I guess, for the profit side. But on the profit side, you you have shareholders and you have things like this where, you know, again, what's what's the motivation and what's the cognitive engagement level for people performing that work, increasing the wealth for shareholders. There's, again, multifaceted, as I said before, about the whole trust trust factor. But again, would be curious to hear your thoughts as well. And then the last question I was asked was about burnout. Are there steps you can take to help ensure that the members of your team do not get burned out? 
yes, I think there are very concrete steps you can take to hopefully avoid burnout amongst those who work for you. Again, this is part of the soil. Don't create conditions that are conducive to burnout. Number one, again, goes down to systems and processes. If you have a bunch of defective systems and processes in your organization, it's going to create extra work. And when you create extra work, you're going to create conditions of burnout because people are going to have to find workarounds for a defective process. And if they don't find a workaround, they're going to make mistakes because the process is defective. It's not efficient. And when they create mistakes, managers and leaders who don't understand systems and processes and the interconnectedness of those processes are going to blame the people instead of blaming the process. Happens time and time again. That's going to create burnout. I believe. I think it's not going to help anyways. I think if you're in a position of leadership and you are the boss that's at work for 10, 12, 14 hours a day, I think that may create an illusion or the perception that others may have to carry your your work style, your work habits from a temporal standpoint. They're going to have to be there and working those long hours because the boss is there working those long hours. Again, burnout's going to follow eventually. I think you have to be mindful of that as, as when you're in a leadership position. Set a good work-life balance example. And that doesn't mean that every leader or manager is in a position where they have a, a, a spouse and kids at home or whatever. You have people in the organization who are single. You have people in the organization that have families. All of these different people need work-life balances, right? Not just people with families. Single folks need a work-life balance as well. Be cognizant of that. I've seen that in the past where we tend to put more focus on people because they have families and we kind of dismiss the ones that that have single lives, right? Those people are just as important. They may have different needs. And as a leader, you have to be aware of those different needs. I think as a, from a leadership perspective, we must be very careful not to burn out those that we see as high performers. I am probably of, as guilty of this as the next person who is in a leadership role or who has been in a leadership role. When I've had high performers that have worked for me in the past, I as a leader tend, tend to gravitate towards those people. I gravitate towards them on an emotional level. I gravitate to them on a on a technical level. And I, I had a tendency to look to these people to solve problems more, to carry more of the workload, to carry more of the burden. I knew maybe I couldn't rely on this person to do this job effectively or efficiently, so I would give it to the to the high performer. And I have led at least one person, maybe two, that I'll be honest with you, this is Tim being real and Tim being raw. I may have almost drove them out of the Coast Guard. And not just me by myself, but part of a 
of a leadership team that overused this person because they were so effective. I think we call those people, you know, the diamonds in the rough, the ones that you can give them any project and they're going to crush it. You could give them any problem. You could ask for their input on any decision and it's going to be valuable. So you start pulling these people into meetings or decision-making conundrums, maybe decision-making conundrums that are above their pay grade that they shouldn't have to worry about being a part of those decision-making conundrums. So again, again, this is just me being kind of real on, on my leadership or lack of leadership at times where I've over relied on, on people because of, of their ability to perform. And that can create burnout real quick or maybe not real quick, maybe over time. And you can lose these people. They can disengage and if not disengage, they can just completely find a new job. Can be a retention issue, I guess, if retention from a, both a civilian and a military perspective. And lastly, be, be cognizant. I think leaders, we have to be cognizant of, of these maybe these high performers that are putting long hours in on the job on their own. We have to keep an eye out for that because burnout's going to come eventually. So I think we, we should be weary of that or be cognizant of that as well. The, the, the workforce that'll work long hours on their own accord or choose to work long hours because they really enjoy their job. But at some point, they'll experience burnout too. Friends, that's all I got today. I wanted to talk about that interview I did. Leadosophy was on the interview stand for some leadership stuff. And again, I was humbled that I was asked to provide input. Nearly everything I said, again, I, I'm not saying that was any universal truths or they hold across all time and space. I don't think that's true. They're just some of my experiences. And again, law of unique experiences. I got to talk about some of my unique experiences. And maybe that helped. Maybe that helped uh, fill in the, the framework of, of what is leadership. Maybe what is the essence of leadership. Maybe I gave just a little bit of, of knowledge that kind of helped fill in some gaps for somebody somewhere. That's all we're trying to do here. Move the needle a little bit. Move the needle of knowledge. Not finding a hard truth. I'm not looking for any hard truths here. I don't know if they can be found. Do you? What do you think? Love to hear your thoughts. Okay, thanks for listening. Remember, Leadosophy is about using the tools of philosophical thought to deepen our understanding of leadership and of life. And of life. I appreciate everyone listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Leadosophy. If you liked what you heard today, hit that subscribe button and check out Leadosophy.com and learn more about Tim's ideas on philosophy and leadership. We'll see you next time.